Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Business Solver. As a leader in benefits technology transforming the total healthcare experience, Business Solver has studied empathy in the workplace since 2015. And honestly, they've found that empathy has never been more instrumental in attracting and retaining talent. But what does empathy look like? From their survey of more than 3,000 employees in six different industries, the results are in. And talent is looking for flexible work arrangements, employers that ease the stigma around taking time off work, and renewed commitments to DEI. Are you ready to infuse empathy into your company culture? Visit businesssolver.com slash empathy. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Hey, welcome to the show. Glad you are here. If you're a first time listener, we are elated that you would drop by and spend time with us. We circle the globe now in 168 countries. And hey, by the way, this is our mission. I don't think I've ever said this out loud on the show before. Not sure why, but I mean, you'll probably hear this a lot from now on. Our mission on the show is to unleash the human spirit to reach its full potential through love and action. And you know, I get this a lot when people hear the word love. Love Marcel? Whoa, 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 what do you mean? Love, love, love. It's like they get an allergic reaction or something, you know? Because, you know, I mean, the word love should never, ever, ever, ever be lumped together with business, right? So the conventional wisdom goes, well, I beg to differ. Love in this sense is in how we use it on this show. It's not romantic love. It's not, you know, friendship love, familial love. It's not a feeling. It's a verb. It's packed with pro-social behaviors and positive intent on behalf of serving the needs of all stakeholders, especially employees on the front lines who deserve our love because, you know, they are the people that make your business go around. So stick around. And if you like what you hear, please share this episode far and wide with a friend and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We would be grateful for that. Okay, so here is the million-dollar question. When was the last time you dealt with bad behavior at work? I mean, maybe you had a, a disagreement with, with a coworker. You know, now they're your enemy. <laughs> they stopped talking to you. So, yes, conflict does happen because we're all different and we, we may see things through different lenses, beliefs, values, and worldviews. But what if you're in an environment that has really difficult people to work with. I mean, how do you manage your your own emotions and, and diffuse conflict so that things don't spiral out of control? And okay, let's be brutally honest here. Sometimes we, we have to acknowledge that the problem is not them, it's us. We may be the source of someone's problems and they're now acting out and making our lives a living hell. But the question then becomes, what are we contributing to the problem. So we all want to get along with our coworkers and, and we should, 
because you know when we have good relationships at work, I mean, this is a no-brainer, folks. We are more productive, we are more engaged, we're more creative, and you know we work better together. So that's the premise of a new book that caught my attention late last year. It was released in September, and it's called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. It's authored by someone I highly admire and follow. That's Amy Gallo, contributing editor at Harvard Business Review. So in this book, Amy shares insights, tools, and techniques based on interviews that she conducted over the more than a decade with social psychologists, workplace experts, and neuroscientists about dealing with difficult coworkers. She even shares some really painful stories from people who have dealt with difficult coworkers. Like for example, the manager who asked the team member to reschedule their wedding day because it conflicted with an important trade show. <laughs> I'm sure you got your own horror stories too. Amy has plenty of them. But she also reveals how people are able to transform negative working relationships to more positive ones. And that's what we're after. And how any of us can develop good coping mechanisms to improve our situation when, when dealing with these difficult people. Amy also identifies eight archetypes. These are you know people that you might be working with right now, and or perhaps you're one of them. And each of these archetypes is a, is a common type of difficult person that you know, that we may be facing. Amy Gallo, as I mentioned, is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, where she writes about workplace dynamics. She is the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict, and she co-hosts HBR's Women at Work podcast. As a speaker and workshop facilitator, Amy has helped thousands of leaders deal with conflict more effectively and navigate complicated workplace dynamics. She is a graduate of Yale University and has a master's in public policy from Brown University. And now Amy joins us. Amy, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you, Marcel. It's great to be here. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. I know we had to reschedule. I got sick and here we are. So, so yeah. glad that you are here. Me too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Amy, we, we have this traditional kickoff question for our listeners to kind of get acquainted with you. You ready? Mm-hmm. What's your story? And we have eight hours to answer this, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so I, I think one of the most relevant things or most influential things in my life is the fact that I was raised by a single mom and who had a career she loved and was a very busy working mom. And we grew up in a town where that was not, it was not normal for women to have a job outside the home. And it wasn't normal to be a single mom. And my mom was very resourceful. So when I, when people ask me, who were you raised by? First answer, of course, was my mom. But then there's this whole ecosystem of people, friends of hers that stepped in and played a critical role in raising me and my brother. And you know, and and the, these range from you know neighbors who she befriended um, soon after she was divorced to colleagues she met at work to boyfriends she had at the time. And you know what was really amazing, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I do now, is just she was teaching me the value of surrounding yourself with important relationships, relationships that are fulfilling, 
that are caring, that are loving. And this idea that the primary source of love for a child needs to come from the parents, absolutely agree with that. But there's so many more sources of love and caring that are, that for me played such a critical role in who I became and also made me feel safe in the world. That's awesome. Even for a two-parent family, you know, it, the, the the thing is it takes a tribe. That's right. And, yeah. And I, I remember growing up as well, having mentors in my life, male mentors, of course. Uh, and, uh, and, and I mean, now it doesn't matter, male or female, you want to surround yourself with people that are, are going to kind of help help you to develop in the areas, you know, in, of your interest. And, uh, yeah. and so I, I got a nine-year-old right now and I'm making sure that I'm going to surround him as well. And he's at that age now because pretty soon it's going to be pre-teens and then and teens yep. and to keep him out of trouble. I want to make sure that he is surrounded just like you were. Yeah. Up with well, I'll, tell, I'll tell you, I, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, I have a 16 year old. So talk about keeping out of trouble. The, the, what's amazing is I realize that those people my mom surrounded with me with are now a critical part of her life too. So when she when she thinks about who her grandparents are, there's a whole cast of people. And yes, I want them to help her keep out of trouble, but I also want them her to be able to go to them if she does get in trouble. And that that's that was just invaluable for me. That's fantastic. All right, so let's dive in to explore this fantastic book of yours. So Amy, you start off the book uh with a chapter on why work relationships are worth the trouble that's the exact saying <laughs> so um can i play a little bit of devil's advocate here for a second please so some people are going you know marcel it's it's just work i don't i don't need to be buddy buddy with anyone i'm here to take care of business and and you know work is stressful enough as it is it's it's fierce it's competitive of course in certain places that's how it is right everyone is 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 fighting for resources and looking after themselves. So a lot of people come from that frame of mind, but you're saying friendships at work matter. So why should we care here? Yeah, and I have to say, I empathize for those who are like, work is work, what are you doing, yeah. right? Right, work isn't personal, what are you doing? I also felt that way for a long time. And, you know, through personal experience of connecting with coworkers and in lots of the places I work, I started to see the benefits. And there are decades of research that show the the more we think of our coworkers as friends, the better the outcomes for us and our organizations. We're more engaged. We feel more fulfilled. Uh, we are more productive. We're more resilient. Uh, we have better cognitive functioning when when we have friends at work. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be your BFF or you need to, you know, get involved in every drama and everything going on going on at work, but it does mean it can help to have um, you know, what's called in the research companionate love with your coworkers and that that just means a sense of caring, a sense of you have each other's back. You're looking out for each other and Again, the research is so clear on this. You know, there's one study actually from a group at Rutgers that looked at performance reviews of and people who said they had a best friend at work tended to have higher performance ratings than those who said they didn't have a best friend at work. I mean, it's we're seeing it in the actual numbers, the impact that having these close positive relationships with our coworkers um, really give us. Yeah. You know, uh, every work environment I've been in, in in my corporate past, there's, you know, the we held on to these tightly knit communities 
of collaborating really well. And there's all there was always maybe one or two people that 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 sort of broke themselves off from the pack and wanted to just uh, they, they were Lone Rangers. And uh, and I'm not saying that they were introverts because that it wasn't a question of personality type. Mm-hmm. But they just didn't see the value in uh, in being part of the community to to you know to kind of cohabit together during the eight to five eight to six hours. I mean you know we spend more awake hours at work <laughs> than we do with our own families. That's right. So why wouldn't you want to develop relationships to work better together? We're not saying that you have to be your like you said you don't have to be a BFF during those work hours, but. It would be helpful if you actually leaned in yeah, to get to know people and to kind of, you know, what, there's your book title, to get along with them. <laughs> That's right. Uh, for business reasons. Yeah. Well, and for, for well-being. You know, the 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 research is also clearly shows, and, and I don't think my mom knew this research when she was raising us, but the research shows the quality of your life is dependent on the quality of your relationships. Now, of course, that means family. Of course, that means partner, community, friendships. But that also means coworkers. And I have empathy for those Lone Rangers, people who are like, I, I don't want to get involved. I have my life outside work. I don't need this. I understand. And, and you know, that's a choice you can make. And certainly no one should be punished or ostracized for doing that, but you won't reap the benefits that we see from having closer relationships with your colleagues. And you're talking, yeah, and yeah. you're talking whole life benefits. So what you're saying is uh, all of the great stuff that happens at work, you carry that forward into your personal life with your family, friends, neighbors, community. That's right. Fantastic. That's right. All right. I want to get into the archetypes. Yeah. Um, we may face at work. This is the the sort of the the bulk of your book, the majority of of, of it. And those are the people that we may perceive as as, as those quote, those big jerks, you know, <laughs> making our lives miserable, you know, so goes the saying. So this is where I can almost hear you listeners going, Yeah, time to stick it to the man, Marcel. Let's hear it, right? But before you start pointing. Uh, the finger at, at at those archetypes. You say we need to clean up our side of the street. So what's the context here? Yeah. So so you know, of course, I want to write a book that would help people who are dealing with people they find challenging, difficult, pushes their buttons. But it's sort of impossible <laughs> to give advice on how to do that without having some sense of self awareness and some idea of how you are contributing to that dynamic but with your coworker now are there bullies are there toxic people who just you know no matter what you do they will not change they're going to make your life miserable yes yeah that's true but chances are in most situations there's some way that you are either reacting to the situation the mindset your user going in is 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 tainting the situation or even some of your own behaviors are triggering the behavior in the other person so the idea of cleaning up your own side of the street is thinking okay what am i how how can i make sure my thoughts actions behaviors are aligned with my values that I'm are aligned with my goal with my, my goal in this relationship whether it's to get along whether it's to improve the relationship whether it's to just get the project done am I sure that the way I am composing myself is in line with that goal and in line with my values yeah I love that you said that we have to raise our self awareness to to kind of get the full picture yeah it's not always blame 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 and point finger it's it's yeah it, you know the, the saying goes if you for every finger you point 
at somebody, there's three pointing back at you. So it's like raising your self-awareness. This is a case for also developing your emotional intelligence to 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 kind of understand, uh, you know, different people and and how they operate within your sphere of influence. So, yeah. Uh, so these eight archetypes, you help us to identify these these toxic. To- well, I don't know if all of them are toxic or not, but they are I, difficult yeah. to to, to deal with, right? They're they're yeah. difficult, and I hesitate. I don't use the word toxic in the in the book very much because partly because I think toxic. It, first of all, I don't know if we should call people toxic. It gets that's a little, yeah. uh, you know, they they have, may have toxic behaviors. You may work in a toxic work environment. I believe that, um, but also because those extreme behaviors, bullying, retaliation, those really be, start veering into to legal issues, HR issues. This book is really about how do I deal with the difficult behaviors, the patterns of behavior that my colleague is exhibiting that may not be uh, a legal issue or an HR issue, but are really still causing me quite a bit of stress and anxiety. This episode is probably sponsored by Business Solver. You know, people are at the heart of everything that Business Solver does as a company. Their people share new ideas to improve products and processes that serve their customers because people are at the heart of everything you do too. Taking care of people is key to keeping up in today's marketplace. In their research, Business Solver found that although empathy at work is on the decline in recent years, managers have never been more instrumental. Increasing 25% since the pandemic, more than a third of employees say their manager has the greatest impact on building an empathetic work culture. Business Solver believes that empathy is so crucial to business today, they've been researching it since 2015. Their State of Workplace Empathy Study aims to educate people on the evolving meanings of flexibility, diversity, and other drivers of culture. So what are the behaviors, policies, and values of an empathetic organization? Discover actionable data at businesssolver.com slash empathy. And one of those that causes stress and anxiety, I think some of you will definitely uh, identify with. Okay, so I wanted to pick um, the, I will start out with the passive aggressive person. So this is a coworker that makes these jabs at you and and then uh, and then the next day they're playing the victim role. So yeah. it's like, who who am I dealing with here? Right. So let, let's start with the passive aggressive. What's the first of all? What's what's going on inside the mind of this person? Why? Are, what causes somebody to to act this way? Yeah. Well, that I actually would love to turn that question to your listeners because, first of all, I don't think any of us can say that we have never behaved passive aggressively. Right? right. It is. It is a it a behavior that many of us resort to sometimes without even realizing it. So I would say for those listening. Think about the time you last behaved passive aggressively and why did you do that? What was motivating you? And often what we see is that it's a fear of conflict, right? It's a conflict avoidant behavior or a fear of rejection. We are afraid if we are truthful about what we think and feel that the person won't like us or will reject us. It's a fear of failure. 
right? I don't want to have to deliver the bad news to my colleague or to my boss. So I just avoid it as much as, as possible. Or, you know, I, I'm asked to do something. This is a classic passive aggressive behavior, right? I'm asked to do something. I say, I'll do it. Oh yeah, sure. Agree in the meeting. And then I just don't, right? Or I do it poorly. And that's, you know, all of that is motivated by fears and often anxiety about what would happen if I was very straightforward about what I'm thinking. And yeah, feeling. it's interesting because I always, you know, some people may just assume that this is a this is a very manipulative person, and we jump into that conclusion that they're just trying to take advantage of you. But there's other things going on in their heads that 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 we need to understand. Yeah. Uh, so and and really. Yeah. I don't think anyone goes home from work and says, wow, I was so passive aggressive today, right? We don't even think of it that way. We think, oh, I was petty or I was avoidant, right? It's not uh, more. There are manipulative people who will use passive aggression to get what they need. But I think more often than not, it's something else that we're trying to avoid. Yeah. All right. So I'm working with a passive aggressive person how what's what what's the best way to approach that individual yeah well first i will say have some empathy for yourself because this it is not easy right working with someone who's passive aggressive can feel like shadow boxing right you're trying to land a comment a question something and they're just you know dodging it left and right so you know you're going to have a range of emotions those are acceptable but Keep an open mind, because I think one of the the things that comes into play, particularly with passive aggression, but with any of the archetypes, is confirmation bias. So as soon as I decide, oh, Marcel is so passive aggressive, everything you do, I now see through that lens. So try to keep an open mind and really focus on what are the specific behaviors that your colleague is doing that are problematic. Yeah, yeah. One of the tactics that that tends to work, not always, but sometimes, and, and is worth certainly trying, is to think about what is the underlying message. So maybe they're rolling their eyes, maybe they're sending a snarky email, maybe they're avoiding the conversation, but what is it all beneath the surface that you think is actually going on. You may not know for sure, that's fine, but come up with a hypothesis and then in a very neutral way, test that hypothesis. So when they say something that's indirect, you might say, you know what I hear under that message is that you aren't happy with the way this project's rolling out and you wish we had would step back and, and reconsider it. Is that true? I, I may be off base, but is that what's going on, right? And they may avoid altogether. They may be like, nope, I'm fine with it, right? They might dive back into their passive aggressive um, reaction, but at least you've given them, you know, the awareness that, that you're gonna pay attention, that you, that you are concerned about what their true thoughts and feelings are. And that's, you know, we, going back to cleaning up your own side of the street. The other thing to think about is what have you done? What may you have you done to encourage some of the passive aggression? Have you made it clear that you don't like to be disagreed with? Do you not like conflict? So you, it, you know, send the signal that they shouldn't disagree with you. Um, have you made it unsafe to fail on your team. You know, think about the ways that you might have been encouraging this behavior and then see if you can sort of counteract that by even saying things like, I know I don't always react well when people disagree with me, but I do truly want to hear your opinion. Yeah, right? Amy, I, I love that because at first you're challenging your own assumptions about the, the, the other person being the source of the problem by, again, I, I just love this whole idea of cl well, clean your side of the street first, okay? What, what, what falls on your side 
uh, what what are you responsible for basically that may be triggering this individual to act that way so yeah yeah and, and so you're taking a higher road here by by doing that uh because it could be really disarming for that individual if you say hey tell me is it is it something that i have done Mm-hmm. And that person, that kind of frees that person up to say, well, yeah, you did something and then you guys can talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and we know from like negotiation research, one of the best ways to get someone to change their mind is to signal your willingness to change your mind. So if you show up and say, you know what, I'm not super proud of how I've been acting in our meetings. I've been a little aggressive or I've been defensive. I'm going to really make an effort to change that going forward, right? That gives them a little bit of room and they won't always take it, but it it get, gives them room to think, well, well, how do I want to be different? Or um, what have I, how have I been showing up? Or maybe there's something that's been weighing on their mind that they can say, you know what? I'm glad you said that. I actually feel like I haven't been hundred percent honest with you. Mm. Right. And so you're just trying to loosen the dynamic between you so that it can change in in some way. That's good. That's good. Okay. How about this one? We've all worked with someone who they they can't seem to find anything positive to say. I mean, ever. Then and they they even seem to just enjoy pointing out all the ways that something has failed, a project, a strategy, right? Uh, these are really <laughs> critical people. They criticize you behind your back and decisions that are made. So th- this is the like the classic pessimist. Yeah. And, and I think that um, pessimists can really drag you down because, you know, if we're not careful, we might get sucked into their vortex of negativity and, and then we, we begin to see things their way. Yeah. So, well- yeah. And they and they have a lot of power, right? So people who have a contrarian view who are, tend to be cynics or pessimistic, we afford them more uh, credence, right? We we if everyone in the room is starting to sort of coalesce around an idea, and this person is like, "Wait, I don't think this will ever work," we give them a lot more attention than we would who is some than someone who was agreeing. So they can have an outsized influence on a team dynamic that that can be really dangerous for a team. Yeah, it sure can. Okay, so is there some psychological reason or driver here? What's going on inside the person's mind as to why they have such a negative outlook? Yeah. Well, again, <laughs> similar to the passive aggressive archetype, it's often driven by by fear and that they don't want to fail. They don't want to appear that they aren't smart enough that oftentimes will be people will be contrarian or pessimistic because they want to appear as if they have power or they want to appear intelligent. Um, and it's an insecurity. It's an insecurity. Or, and to be fair, if we sort of take the judgment out of it, there's this concept in social psychology called motivational focus. And people who are optimists tend to be promotion focused. They look for the opportunities. They're forward, you know, focus on forward momentum. People with a prevention focus, which pessimists often fall into, really are good at assessing risks, at preventing future calamities from happening. And so 
you know, they do serve an important role. And we don't want to dismiss pessimists outright because sometimes they're pointing out risks that are real risks and that we might might miss otherwise. So, you know, it, we, we got to appreciate what they bring while also making sure that they don't, you know, sort of send the gray cloud over the entire team or the the entire project. Right. So let's say that this person is, is, is I mean, uh, you know, the scale is tipping towards it's it's a dark, cloudy day almost every day here. <laughs> so, all right, right, and, right. And, I, and you're at the brink of all right. Uh, do I need to find another place to work? So, what yeah. uh, what are some techniques we need to use to? Well, now it's like okay, manage ourselves around this extreme pessimist, and also maybe bring that person to uh, kind of seeing a different way of doing things. Yeah. So I'll share one thing definitely not to do and then two two things that you might do. So the thing not to do is to insist on optimism. So, you know, your listeners have probably heard this concept of toxic positivity, right? The many organizations where we just insist that we're optimistic, we're positive, and it and we don't allow for the full range of emotion that people feel. Plus, pessimists tend to think that optimists are idiots. They're naive, right? So the more you insist, no, it's all going to work out. No, it's going to be good. No, this is going to succeed. The more they will be entrenched in their view of you just don't see it clearly. And they might be more negative than they actually feel because they feel the need to counteract that positivity. Right. So, so avoid the power struggle at all costs with these people. Okay. Exactly. So what you do instead is sort of grant them their premise. And that by that, I mean, you don't have to say, oh, you're right. This is all going to fall apart. Right. But you can say, you know, part of me agrees that there are big risks here. Another part of me actually feels like if we did this and this, we could succeed. Right. So just trying to make sure that you're not dismissing their concerns outright, but that you're you're helping to endorse them, not not by saying they're 100 percent true, but allowing that they might be true. I think that that can really help. The other thing is to ask questions, you know, open ended questions like if they say, well, that will never succeed. Say, well, what would it take for it to succeed? What would have to be different? You know, under what circumstances do you think this this would actually be a possibility? You know, you might also assign them the devil's advocate role in the because because they're so good at identifying the risk. You might even say, you know what, this is your real strength. We'd love for you to point out the risk. We're going to consider them along with with everything else. And we really appreciate you doing that. Now, you're trying to draw them out of that negativity by doing by asking these questions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and then the. Last thing I would say, because it because you alluded to this when you, you were talking about this archetype, is that it can be really contagious, right? They can really, this gray cloud over the whole team can be really hard on everyone. So really try to make sure that you, as an individual who's having to deal with a pessimist, who's complaining, who's, you know, just so negative in their in their thoughts and actions, make sure that you're spending time with people who tend to be more positive, just to counteract some of that and to remind yourself that this is not, this, this doom and gloom is not the only way to see the world or to see your work or to see the project you're working. Yeah, I love that because if you set boundaries against this extreme pessimist, that dark cloud hanging over their heads might change one day and, and, you know, and, and become a sunny day when they see that, Hey, you know what? I'm the outcast here. And yeah. so I better get with the program because these people are, are positive. They're contributing, uh, et cetera. So it's like, you know, you don't want to be a, the outcast 
walking under your own dark cloud every day. So yeah. it's I, I love that by seeking more positivity, more coworkers that are optimists. Hopefully, you're drawing the pessimist into the fold, right? So they yeah. You know. Oh. Or they might just develop the self-awareness to realize they're a pessimist and that's going to be their viewpoint. And then they can actually acknowledge that. Like, I know I'm the one who always points out the rest, but I have to say, right? Like, and, and that is less harmful, less stressful than someone who's like, no, everything will go wrong. Right. And, and so, you know, even getting them to see the impact that their pessimism has on the team can be really helpful in trying to, to, you know, neutralize that, that effect. Yeah. It's funny that you said that sometimes they do play their play to, to their strengths to kind of warn us about risks involved. And because is it, is it fair to say that um, a team may be way too op- idealistically optimistic where we need to counter that by having somebody that maybe sees things a little bit pessimistic to, yeah, I mean, to kind of balance things out. Yeah, I mean, group think is real, right? And yeah. I think a lot of it, who wouldn't want to believe the best is going to happen? You know, we I think we tend to sort of fall into that of like, yeah, the, this could work if we do this and this. Which might be true, but many times because that we're sort of naturally inclined to agree with people, it's how we've survived as a species, is in, in community and connection with others. Because of that being hardwired for likability, sometimes we don't raise the concerns we have or the issues we have. So, you know, as I said earlier, you don't want to dismiss the pessimist outright. They may be playing a really important role on your team. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. Okay, I'm going to. Pull one more archetype from the book just for the sake of time here. So sure. I've, I've I've dealt this with this one many times. It's the know it all, the 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 person that thinks that you know they have all the answers. They they may be that person in in meetings that uh, they talk too much. They just can't stop talking. They speak over you. They interrupt a lot, and and you know and just for the record, they're usually really smart people. Don't get me wrong, but you know, but because they know all the facts and they know how the how the business runs, uh, they may lack the self awareness to kind of understand maybe the nuances of a situation mm-hmm. involving people. So this is somebody that I would say is convinced in their minds that they're the smartest person in the room. Perhaps That's they right. are, but help us to understand better about the know it all behavior. Yeah. And this one, this chapter was not easy to write because it's the one I identify most with of the archetypes. When I think about which one am am I most like, it it is the know-it-all. But it also gives me a little bit of insight into why people behave this way. And, And part of it is that as a especially U.S. work culture, we tend to really reward overconfidence. Now, overconfidence is natural. One of my favorite statistics about this is that like something like 73% of drivers think they're above average in terms of driving skills, which is a statistical impossibility, right? So, but but people also think they're going to be more likely to get a job than they are, that they're going to, their initial salary coming out of their graduate program is going to be higher. We tend to just have this confidence that not everyone but the, but it's a, a natural thing to feel and then we reward we reward it partly because often it's about things that we don't have 
sort of hard measures like leadership or managing, right? We can't, it's hard to say this person scores an 87 on leadership, though lots of people do quantify those things. So we rely on people to tell us how good they are at these things. And that means that we tend to value confidence over competence. So the know-it-all may be driven, again, by fear and insecurity, trying to prove themselves, but they also just may believe they know more than others. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that conf, uh, being overconfident. I had uh, Dr. Tomas Chamorro per music on the yes. show a while back, and you know he wrote the book on uh, why, I forget the title, but it was very provoking. Why So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders. Yep. That one. Yeah. And and he's talking about how we hire we hire leaders based on confidence. Of course, we want leaders who are confident, but then confidence can easily turn to overconfidence, which now yes. now we now we see the narcissist narcissistic behaviors that that uh, that are so prevalent, you know, in the C suite with the people in the highest levels. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, Tom, Tomas, his, his work really informed this chapter. He, and he actually, I interviewed him for this chapter because it, it is that work around the way that we sort of value confidence over competence is really important. And, and the know it all to, you know, just thinking about Tomas's work, the know it all is also very, one of the flavors of the know it all is the mansplainer, right? Someone who really feels like their ideas, and their voice is much more important, um, or their expertise is much more important. And then there's a add that to the gender bias that that often we don't allow women to sort of claim expertise or um, you know explain how their areas of um, experience. Then then the know it all might talk over them, interrupt them, talk down to them, etc. Uh, okay, Amy. So how do we how do we deal with the know it all? I mean, what do you recommend? Yeah. So there's a couple things. One, I would say, you know, first and foremost, if this is someone who just proclaims things without any basis for that for that proclamation, which I I will admit, something I sometimes do, it can be helpful to just ask for facts and data. Right. Yeah. So what are you what are you basing that on? Oh, I have a different assumption. Where where did you get this information or what makes you believe that? Um, what's another way of viewing that? All right. If if you think our customers are never going to go for this this new pricing scheme. Right. How might someone else see it? Right. How might someone in finance see it or someone in marketing? Just trying to sort of help them see there's a different way of viewing this and to put them on notice that I'm not just going to let you proclaim, right? I'm going to ask for the 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 facts behind what what you're saying. Now, that can feel a little confrontational depending on your style that might not be not, might not be as comfortable. You know, one of the other things that's really important with a with a know-it-all is one of their sort of hallmark behaviors is interrupting or talking over you. And so you can preempt that behavior by even saying it before you start talking. I mean, it helps me to to finish my thought before people jump in. So can you just please hold any questions or comments till I'm finished? I love it. And if you're getting interrupted over and over and your attempts to say, I'm speaking, I'd like to finish my point, don't work, then you want to enlist the help of allies, people in the room who can speak up on your behalf. And you might go and say, you know, Marcel, I, I get interrupted by Amy, uh, you know, three times in a meeting. I find it really frustrating. I think it undermines me. Would you mind when he does that or when she does that to to say, you know, Amy's not done or Marcel's not done talking. Can you can you wait 
and and I'd like to hear what he has to say. So just just enlisting help from the group is often and, and with many of these behaviors and archetypes, oftentimes that positive peer peer pressure of creating group norms and team norms can really help to counteract some of those behaviors. That's exactly what I just noticed. It applies to any of the archetypes. You set group norms, you set boundaries against those those behaviors. That's right. Okay, so those are some of the do's. What are some of the absolute don'ts with the know-it-all? Uh, with the know-it-all, again, you don't want to get into a power struggle of I'm right, you're right, right. You don't want to do that. You don't want to get in a position where you're trying to take them down as a as a result you basically don't want to retaliate with the with the same behavior and you know every time they act like a know-it-all or they say something i actually had a coaching client who had a tendency to say oh you know at my last organization because he had worked at a prestigious organization and it just rubbed his colleagues the wrong way and you know, we worked to sort of develop his awareness that he was doing that of like sort of being this know-it-all in that way, but he couldn't stop it completely. He really tried. And so really part of, part of dealing with him was accepting that, okay, he's going to say that once in a while. And rather than let it sort of eat you up inside, it's just like, oh, you know, that's, that's what he says. Let me actually listen to the rest. And, and, you know, you can't address every single transgression with a know-it-all or of any of the archetypes. So you, you know, really need to, to just sort of pick your battles and decide when is it going to be most effective to address the behavior and when are the times when I can let it go. Yeah. But I would also say, do not let them make you see, feel small, especially in front of other people. And, and that's, owning your own expertise, addressing the behavior when it needs to be addressed, and then remembering that just because they're condescending to you, because they're being a know-it-all does not mean it's not reflective of you. That's about them. Yeah. So we covered three archetypes. We barely scratched the surface <laughs> to understand these people better. And folks, I urge you, go get Amy's book to fully understand all eight archetypes and, and how to cope in more positive ways. All right, Amy says, we wind down here. What if everything we've tried doesn't work and yeah. we still cannot get along with a coworker? I mean, what do you recommend at that point? Yeah. And that's, that is a reality. You know, I would love to say you're going to get my book and every relationship of yours at work is going to be positive or at least neutral. But sometimes we put in our best effort and, and like you say, the behavior just doesn't change. And in that case, it's really then a matter of protecting yourself, both mentally, but then also from a career perspective. So making sure you're documenting the behavior in case you'd make the decision to escalate it to someone who can do something about it, whether it's your manager, their manager or HR, you know, making sure that you have a real record of the behavior, when it happened, what happened and what you tried to do to address it as well as the business impact, right? You want to make sure you can show that this behavior is impeding the team's progress, holding back a project, something that that someone who who would be able to intervene would care about. You know, and then also just setting some boundaries. And, and I mean that both practically, so the pessimist is a great example. If there's someone who just stops by your desk and complains incessantly, right? Have a few phrases in your back pocket so you can move on of like, oh, thanks for stopping by. I got to get to this email or, you know, I need to run out and get a cup of coffee. I'll be back in a little bit, whatever it is, so that you're minimizing the amount of interaction you have with them. And, and really, 
there's this concept called job crafting where you can, you know, obviously you're not going to change your job description, but you can choose where you focus both in terms of what you work on and who you work with. And in, in a way that makes it, you know, makes it so you don't have to interact with these folks as much as, as, you know, as little as possible. And then the boundaries mentally of, you know, don't let yourself spend your entire day focused on your difficult colleague. It is tempting to do that, right? Thinking about them, ruminating about it. You know, if you if you can set an alarm for 15 minutes, say, okay, I'm going to think about how much I don't like this person and what how they're bothering me. And then at the end of the 15 minutes, move on, right? Just make sure it's ba- it's time bound so that you're not allowing it to sort of take over your psyche. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's ultimately our hope that as we send these cues and these signals and set these boundaries that they're going to, like you said, raise their self-awareness to, to understand uh, the changes that need to take place. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right, Amy. So we pose you the uh, leadership love question tradition on the show. And this is an interesting spin on this, on this question for, for the longtime listeners, you know, they expect this every week, but, and here it is. The question is how, how do we lead with practical and actionable love and care day in and day out? But in this case, what would you say is a loving way to lead someone who is a really difficult person to work with? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that has happened, I'm, I'm not sure what the origin of it, I'm not sure how long it's been going on, but I think in, in the workplace, we often think of love as something that's positive and caring, which is true, but we've sort of disassociated it from honest and direct feedback. And I think sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to help someone realize the impact they're having on other people. And so I think in this case, love, when you're thinking about someone who's pushing your buttons, maybe irritating the team, love may look like taking the risk of saying, hey, I have some feedback for you. I just want you to understand the impact that your negativity, your insecurity, your passive aggressive behavior, your know it all this, whatever is having on your ability to meet your goals. And I just, I think that that in being willing to engage in that conflict, that difficult conversation is a true act of love. And you know what? Some people will hear that and they will accept it and they will thank you for your, your tough feedback. That's tough love. Yeah. Well, and yeah. yeah, just like parent, or they may, you know, I, I always think about this. I, I worked with someone who who made an inappropriate comment, and I really wrestled with how to address it. I finally addressed it. She was completely defensive. We had several conversations. It was so uncomfortable. And I presumed that it was a failure, right? My attempt to sort of call it out was a failure of our relationship with Simmons. And then I heard from someone else we worked with who was like, oh, she really appreciated that you pointed that out to her. And so sometimes you won't get the reaction you expect. It won't, they won't say thank you. They won't, you know, say, oh, you're so right. I'm going to change everything, but it gets in there. And I think that's the thing is that sometimes taking the risk of, of just giving that gift you know, you don't have to be thanked, but know that even even doing it sometimes is that's the act. You may plant a seed that it's you know it may not happen under your watch, but that person may may turn around and uh, in another season and and you know hang on to something that you said three months ago 
and finally see the light, you know, later. That's um, right. And to, you know, and helps, helps with their own professional development. That is my hope yes. is that that kind of tough love where you, you say what you need to say in a, in a, in a tactful way, not in a judging, blamey way, but in a way that's going to help them to, to, to shift their mind. Absolutely. I think that it's something that we should uh, do more of if we're courageous enough. Yeah. 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 I mean, and this is like my biggest takeaway from my work around conflict and difficult people is that we often think of disagreeing or standing up for ourselves or advocating for ourselves or pointing out something that's not going wrong, not going right as unkind or as disruptive. And I just completely believe that disagreeing is not only important to do, but it's a generous act because it it involves some risk for you. But as long as you do it with compassion and kindness and empathy, right, then then ideally it will be received in the way that you hope it will be. Fantastic. All right. We bring it home with two questions, Amy, as we do with every guest. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Oh, that's... A, <laughs> I think one of the things I'm really concerned about is the way that we're handling our difficult relationships, difficult conversations in remote work. I think we're, we're, you know, we all feel a little less human in these environments. I think that we tend to avoid conflict in them because the, the hurdle is higher for actually having these conversations. So I'm, one of the things I'm really sort of keeping an eye on is, is just, you know, making sure that we, the organizations I work with, the teams I work with, don't become completely conflict avoidant as a revol- result of the ways in which we're we're interacting now. Perfect. And finally, you close us out, Amy, with a key takeaway or something to keep us inspired. Yeah. So I think one of the, and this, I'll try to keep something really practical because I, I always love to give practical takeaways, which is one of the mindsets I think that's really helpful to go into these you know, tricky interactions or tricky relationships is to not think about it as you versus the other person. It's really easy to get into sort of picture it as a tug of war or a battle. But what I really like to think of is that it's me, the other person, and then there's a third entity, which is the problem that we're trying to solve. And that might be the initiative we're working on, the deadline we need to get to, or it might just be how we treat one another. And for me, seeing myself on the same side of the table as that person, even just as a mental exercise, can put me in a more collaborative, open-minded, and even sort of, you know, get into that problem-solving focus so that that me and the other person are, are no longer at odds, but we're actually collaborating to achieve something together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This has been such a good conversation. Amy, if people want to connect with you, can you point them somewhere that they can go and and get to know you, get to know what you do, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. So if you love podcasts, which I assume you do, if you're listening to this show, I definitely suggest checking out the um, Harvard Business Review Women at Work podcast, which I co-host. And if you want to stay in touch with me, find my book, find my writing, you can go to my website, which is amyegallo.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. You can, you know, like I said, find different links to to purchase my book, both of my books, and and also um, find some of my writing from HBR. The book, again, is called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. She is Amy Gallo. Amy, thank you so much for blessing us with your wisdom today. We're all much, much better for it. 
Thank you, Marcel. This has been a really fun conversation. And you can keep the conversation going on social media with hashtag love in action podcast. And also look for my show notes on my website, marcelschwantes.com. You can find all the resources there to this episode, including a YouTube link. If you prefer to watch it, uh, I'll watch the show from now on. And finally, hey, we're always looking for sponsors. So if you want to help us to spread the love in action movement globally, let's chat. Reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn. I want to thank today's sponsor, Business Solver, for making this episode happen. Leaders who want to motivate their people in today's workplace must realize that empathy is a non-negotiable. Let's continue this conversation by exploring their findings at businesssolver.com slash empathy. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.